that's part of what got me interested in the Arctic too. But I think everybody was starting to sort of, the alarm bells were starting to ring about, you know, these issues happening in the Arctic. And so a lot of funding was getting put into, like, we need to get up there and start studying it and see what's going on. Hi, I'm Karina Giefrecht. Um, I study dive bombs uh, up in the Arctic. I'm a biological oceanographer. I also sometimes refer to myself as a biogeochemist. <laughs> Welcome to episode four of Below the Tide. My name is Liz, and today I am sitting down with Karina Giesbrecht, and we're talking about Arctic science and the research that she did on Arctic plankton. For all of my episodes, I do have resources on my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast. So I do encourage you to go and check that out. It'll also give you insight into the next topic and when the next episode will be released. So grab a coffee and enjoy. So I'm Karina Kiesbrecht. Um, Right now I work as a senior lab instructor at the University of Victoria for oceanography and geochemistry. Um, I did my PhD studying diatoms and like silica cycling in the Arctic. Um, diatoms are a group of phytoplankton that I think are the coolest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty rad. They, uh, they help a lot with like regulating uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and um, help to sort of transport carbon to the deep ocean where it can be stored for a long time. Um, they're really important to the like food web. So, you know, it's, um, they're sort of the, the plants of the ocean. It's, that reminds me, my nephew once described what I did as counting the flowers in the ocean, oh. which I thought was like so poetic and sweet. And he was, I don't know, four years old at the time. So I, I've always kept that in my mind that like, yeah, that, that's what I'm doing when I'm <laughs> filtering like liters and liters of water. Um, yeah, so that's sort of my, my research in a very quick nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you want to kind of just explain what phytoplankton is and then sure. where diatoms fit in there? Yeah, so phytoplankton, we consider them the like base of the marine food chain. Um, you can, they're, they're algae is another way mm -hmm. to sort of describe them. Um, they're, they're incredibly important. So um, they are like the plants of the ocean and they feed um, the zooplankton, which is kind of the next level up and then the fish feed on the zooplankton. So um, they're not only contributing to like, you know, food in the ocean, but then because they're plants, they're also producing oxygen and like phytoplankton produce about 50% of the oxygen we breathe. So I don't think people really realize how important they are. Um, and I think part of it is that one, they're like microscopic, so you can't see them easily with your eye. And also that they have really short turnover time. So it's not like trees where they just kind of like accumulate over years and years and yeah, trees contribute oxygen too, but uh, the phytoplankton are turning over like in a matter of days. Um, so that's when they die. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, when they're when they're dying um, and then sinking. And you know, they're, they're taking up the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turning it into like carbohydrates, like organic matter. Mm -hmm. And then that's what all the other organisms are eating too. Um, but some of that organic matter is just going to straight up sink out of the surface and take away the carbon. So wow. I think they're super cool. <laughs> I've, I've always been fascinated by them since I first started learning about them. So mm -hmm. yeah. So diatoms are a type of phytoplankton. Yeah. So diatoms, there's kind of like some main groups of phytoplankton. So there's the diatoms, there's coccolithophores, dinoflagellates, 
um, cyanobacteria people hear about a fair amount that's like blue-green algae mm -hmm. so you'll often hear about them in like lakes and stuff right. um, where you can't go swimming mm -hmm. dinoflagellates um, contribute to like red tide so that's when you can't eat shellfish because they um, produce like neurotoxins that if you eat them it would not be a good idea <laughs> um, coccolithophores um, are, are very cool little organisms they have um, calcium carbonate sort of plates all around them um, and like the White Cliffs of Dover, those are essentially coc coccolithophores. So um, their outsides are made of chalk in oh, a way. Cool. Um, and then diatoms, are, um, they also have like a hard shell uh, around them um, made of silica. So sometimes people describe them as living in glass houses because glass is, is silica. So they have like these heavy frustules is how we describe it. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're quite big. Um, they're really good at like using nutrients in the water um, and like growing quickly. We often find them close to the coasts because that's where there's a lot of like nutrients in the water, um, but they really are found everywhere in the oceans um, and they're super diverse. Maybe you can elaborate on diatoms role with carbon dioxide, just like yeah. kind of simplified how it kind of gets cycled. Yeah, so mm -hmm. um, diatoms being phytoplankton, mm -hmm. they need, they need like, nutrients so this is like nitrogen phosphorus mm -hmm. um, in the case of diatoms they also need sil silicon um, but they need carbon to grow like mm -hmm. you know we eat food to get our source of carbon and that's organic matter but like just like trees or any other kind of plant here on land like they take co2 out of the air and convert it into carbohydrates or sugars or um, you know proteins and all that sort of stuff and uh, phytoplankton do the same so instead of taking CO2 directly out of the air, they need it to dissolve into seawater first, um, but it does quite easily. And then they take that and turn it into or their organic matter, so they're like particles. Um, and then that's what feeds the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So basically like CO2 that humans would be producing, would they be taking that up into the ocean? Yeah, so the ocean absorbs like a lot of CO2 that we're producing. Mm -hmm. Some of it gets like, there's, there's two different types of pumps that people talk about in the ocean in terms of like carbon pumps. There's mm -hmm. the biological carbon pump, which is the, the phytoplankton side of it um, and like the ecosystem. And then there's the solubility pump um, and so the solubility sol being like how easily th like things dissolving mm -hmm. in a in a liquid um, and so the solubility pump has to do with like the ocean is in a static place like you know there's currents and things are moving and um, there's places where deep water forms so like the waters get really 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 cold um, in in winter time um, and because they get so cold, it means that they get quite dense. And then when water is dense, it sinks. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it gets really cold, when water is really cold, it actually can hold more gas. Mm -hmm. um, CO2 is a gas. So when the waters are really cold, they're getting dense. They take up a whole bunch of CO2, they sink, and then they're down in the deep water. And so it's been pumped to the deep water, the solubility pump. The biological carbon pump is the phytoplankton taking up CO2 from the water and then they can either sink because they're dying um, or they get eaten and die um, and <laughs> repackaged into fecal pellets so like zooplankton poop mm -hmm. um, or other things and sink to the bottom and so it's another way for the carbon to go from the surface waters and essentially the atmosphere because mm -hmm. they're linked 
um, down into the deep water where we think of them being kind of stored for about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of becomes a future Earth problem um, because as those waters start coming back up to the surface, they're going to have more carbon than they yeah. did before. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, that's sort of what's helping to keep the planet in balance. But as we well know, that's not working so well anymore. And it's, I mean, the oceans only have so much capacity to do that as mm -hmm. well. Um, and we're, we're starting to, to push it. Yeah, it's um, kind of like that perfect system, but now you've like added a lot. To yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. You're changing it, so mm -hmm. things are going to change. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it just shows the importance of phytoplankton. Yeah. Like, it's not just based on like the food web or like their production of yeah. oxygen. It's also the fact that they take up carbon dioxide. Yeah, like mm -hmm. they help to regulate the climate. They mm -hmm. like produce air that we breathe mm -hmm. and they like feed the ecosystem so that we can have like a source of food. Yeah. Like they're so important. Mm -hmm. And they're tiny. And they're tiny. How big are they? Microscopic, yeah. like, um, you know, nanometers long. Yeah. Um, which is insanely or small. micrometers long depending mm -hmm. like there's a, there's also a range of sizes for yeah. them too like you know some some phytoplankton can get up to like a millimeter mm -hmm. long for the really big heifers but yeah. like in general like yeah maybe from like two nanometers to like five five micrometers mm -hmm. and what does your field work or what did your field work look like during your research yeah most of my field work was on like big coast guard ships so okay. I did a lot of work on the Canadian coast guard ships all over the place mm -hmm. um well Canada Canada's three oceans yeah <laughs> um so like during my master's I did work along line P which is like a straight line to the west um off the west coast of Vancouver Island mm -hmm. like 1500 kilometers just to the middle of nowhere yeah. pretty much um, and then stopping every once in a while to take samples at these like predetermined locations that people have been sampling since I think also the 50s because mm -hmm. they used to have weather ships out at this ocean station Papa um, oh yeah you know before we had satellites and all that mm -hmm. so it would be like ships that could let you know what weather was coming <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be great to be that weatherman <laughs> I know right and so they would they would go and sit out there for a few weeks and then they would come back and so they started like doing this line of sampling mm -hmm. um, and so it started this long-standing time series and it's been carried on um, by the federal government um, they they pay for the Coast Guard to go out three times a year and like it's DFO who goes out to do the sampling mm -hmm. and other scientists will like hop join on. on yeah hop on to yeah. do their work and help out with with the sort of standard sampling that's done mm -hmm. um, so it's it's pretty cool to have that much data to like work with in the in the long run um, but yeah, so I, I was, I went on those cruises. It was, it was three times a year. I usually went on two cruises. Uh, they were February, June, and August. The February cruise was uh, intense. My, my very first cruise ever. Um, it was February, 2008. And uh, it was the worst weather they'd had in like 30 years. And I like, I'm kind of thankful in a way because I didn't know what to expect being on a cruise, but we went through essentially three hurricanes. Um, the waves were like 40 to 50 feet high for two weeks straight. And the ship that we were on were not, it wasn't designed for that kind of weather. And so we were just corkscrewing like the whole time. And like we, you'd have to like shove yourself into your bunk. Like you'd put a life jacket like under the mattress to like keep yourself in place. Cause otherwise you'd be like rolling around everywhere. 
Um, and I'm assuming the bunks are already very tight and yeah, small. Yeah, they're, they're not like, they're actually, they're pretty comfy, mm -hmm. all, all things considered, but they're not like twin size mattresses. Yeah. They're, they're a little smaller than that um, and definitely like cozy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we weren't allowed out on deck, so we actually weren't able to do all of the work that we wanted to do. I was still able to get everything done that I needed to do, partly because when I was on that cruise, um, a technician was there from like Roberta's old lab who he'd been doing this stuff for his like whole career. So like he was fine with it. And I was like, I don't know what to expect. And I remember when I got back that uh, Roberta told me that everyone in the department was giving her a hard time being like, your student's gonna leave because like nobody's gonna wanna go through that. And then I like she had asked me how it went. I was like, yeah, it was okay, like it wasn't bad. And then she told me, she's like, that's when I knew you're gonna be an oceanographer. It's like, if you can handle that. Then, And I've never been in weather like that since. Yeah. So How long was that cruise? Uh, it was two and a half weeks. Wow. So I'm just rocking back and forth. Yeah. I remember when we finally, so like the the cruise track that we went on was out from Victoria out to Station Papa and then we went up um, to the north part of Vancouver Island and then we were going to come back on the inside passage. And I remember when we finally turned the corner, I was like, did the ship break? Because all of a sudden everything just got like quiet and like flat and things stopped moving. And it was like, oh no, this is just like... <laughs> what it would be like in calm water and I did a bunch of work um, up in the Arctic so yeah. that like very cool experiences some uh, not not so cool um, the the first time I went up to the Arctic was on the Laurier leaving from here in Victoria going up through the Bering Strait um, and then getting off in Barrow Alaska and then flying home and that was that was amazing like we saw walruses and polar bears and like just these like huge amounts of birds because it's it's the like prime feeding time when we were up there in July um, for all these animals. So mm -hmm. that's like super cool. And then like hitting the ice and having to break the ice and yeah, that was a lot of fun. Was yeah. it cold up in the Arctic? Sadly, like no. No? <laughs> that, uh, in some places, like as we got farther north, the first couple years that I went up, we would hit ice and mm -hmm. it would be chilly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, af after that, we would go up and there'd be no ice and mm -hmm. we'd be out on deck in t-shirts and pants. Like yeah. it was, you know, maybe like 10, 12 degrees, but mm -hmm. uh, definitely not sort of what you would imagine the Arctic to be. Mm -hmm. Once we got on land, it was often a bit colder, especially at night, but mm -hmm. um, for where we were um, out at sea, yeah, not yeah. not so cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even, so when I was on the Geotraces cruise, we left from Quebec City, went up through the Labrador Sea, Baffin Bay, through the Northwest Passage, and then got off in Kagluktuk, which mm -hmm. is up in the um, Northwest Territories. I think yeah um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember like <laughs> geographic yeah um, and but yeah like going through the Northwest Passage there it was it was amazing to see that and experience it and like it kind of felt like you're on the moon or something because like the land there all of all of the the ground is just this really fine like dirt mm -hmm. um, and it, it doesn't look like anything I'd ever seen before but n no ice yeah. And like there there should have been ice. Yeah. And so I think all of us were kind of feeling a bit like 
not great. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, like mm-hmm. climate change is a real issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was very apparent when we were up there. Yeah. But I mean, that's part of why we were up there too, is, mm-hmm. is to sort of get those samples. And I mean, people haven't been sampling up there much so it's almost to get a baseline too Mm -hmm. and like understand the dynamics of the arctic better because we don't understand it all that well Mm -hmm. and like the arctic is so um different in every place like it's you know described as the arctic but like there's huge variations in like the ecosystem and you know some places yeah there's nothing growing but other places like it's hugely productive and like supporting all of these people and their livelihoods and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, and um yeah one of my questions is kind of how do you see um, your research being affected by climate change yeah and did you see that while you were sampling or kind of looking into the future um so one of the parts of my my phd was to actually look at how the phytoplankton were changing over time in the Bering and Chukchi seas. So I like I went up there for four years in a row at the same time to take samples in the same places and see how it might change. And then prior to that, other people had taken some samples too from my lab. And so like to compile all that and see if there was a difference. What I discovered is that that area is so variable that like no couldn't couldn't see any change. Right. Like it was it was we'd have to take more samples. Right. And that can sometimes just be the case is like, mm-hmm. we don't have the data to really say much about it. Um, I did see some change in the Bering Sea that like the the timing, so phytoplankton kind of, you know, like trees or, or flowers or that sort of thing, like they bloom at, mm-hmm. at certain times of the year. Um, and it's it's pretty, you know, there's some variation there, but ultimately kind of standard when they're gonna bloom. What they've been noticing up in the Arctic is like blooms are happening um, earlier. And the reason the blooms are happening earlier is because the sea ice is breaking up earlier. But then, you know, if you start shifting those dynamics, it's gonna like cascade up the food web and not necessarily in good ways. Right. Um, And so, you know, if the phytoplankton are blooming earlier, but the zooplankton that eat them, you know, don't grow when they're supposed to, they can like miss their food source and then like the, um, community can collapse right um, and if the zooplankton aren't there and the fish can't eat them then you know you yeah the whole food web just cascades. Yeah. yeah and and that's a big problem in the Arctic because these food webs are not very complex they're mm-hmm. very like you know diatoms copepods so diatoms phytoplankton copepods zooplankton and then um, oh I can't remember the name of the fish now but anyway there's a fish yeah um, and that's it and yeah. like if they're not there then the ecosystem collapses. Mm -hmm. Um, The other problem is like temperature changes. So the Arctic is warming faster than Mm -hmm. anywhere else on the planet. Um, So the waters are warming up and that leads to like northward migration of organisms. So Mm -hmm. like we're seeing, um, I think killer whales are being seen like up into the Arctic now Mm -hmm. where they have never been seen before because the waters are warm enough that they can actually get up there and they're like you know, external to the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. they're going to cause problems too. Yeah. And uh, some of my research, you know, on the east eastern side of the Canadian Arctic, you know, towards like Baffin Bay and, and the Northwest Passage and that sort of stuff. Um, I saw some indication that there was going to be a second bloom of phytoplankton in the fall, which is also not typical. Mm-hmm. So in the Arctic, usually there's one bloom that happens 
around May, mm -hmm. um, and and that's it. As you start moving, you know, south into you know where we are, we usually see two blooms of phytoplankton, one in the spring and another in the fall, right. and so we're starting to see indications that the Arctic is also starting to see a fall bloom, which is not typical. And it's because of all of these changes that mm -hmm. are happening. Um, so yeah. it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's happening. Mm -hmm. And all we can do at this point is sort of point it out and, and see what can be done at a global level to sort of try to mitigate climate change. But mm -hmm. yeah, it, uh, it's changing so fast. Yeah, it's changing so fast that it's hard to keep track of, mm -hmm. and um, we're we're almost trying to play catch up because we we haven't been monitoring the Arctic closely, and I think that's what people are starting to realize is like the Arctic is an important important place in yeah. the world's ocean. So mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. It. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, even you saying that you saw a change in the ice between cruises yeah. Yeah. is like goes to show that there's people who are s witnessing that change yeah but not everyone gets to witness that change yeah so we're kind of comfortable living in our in our area or our city our home and we don't see the actual 100 percent. and i mean i think that's part of it is even sometimes being told about it doesn't doesn't necessarily like really hit home the implications mm -hmm. like i I've wondered because of the heat dome that we just experienced, right. like, is that going to lead to more like public support of like climate efforts mm -hmm. or, you know, are, are people going to quickly forget about it? But like, yeah. it was, it was horrible. Oh yeah. Dealing with that. And mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and the plankton don't have air conditioning either. No, no, they don't. Yeah. And like the number of organisms that died in the intertidal zone because mm -hmm. of this like heat dome that, that occurred. Um, and it, it is tied into the Arctic warming up. Mm -hmm. That's part of what got me interested in the Arctic too, but I think yeah. everybody was starting to sort of, the alarm bells were starting to ring about, you know, these issues happening in the Arctic. And so a lot of funding was getting put into, like we need to get up there and start studying it mm -hmm. and see what's going on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Below the Tide. My name is Liz, and I really hope you enjoyed and you learned something, you laughed, and I hope you're excited for next week's episode. We'll continue with Karina about more of her stories from the Arctic and her research. Don't forget to follow my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast for all the information for the upcoming episodes. Have a great day.